1: Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, joined again by historian Joseph Ellis. Not long ago, Professor Ellis joined me to talk about his new bestseller, The Cause. And good morning, Professor. Welcome back. It's good to have you with us.
2: Thanks so much for having me back, Hugh. Uh, how how goes The Cause?
1: Is it doing well?
2: It just came out today. Oh, it's I didn't sure. know that. Yeah. Today is the publication date. Um, uh like every uh, new child, of course, I have high hopes for it, and, um, but uh, it's too early to tell.
1: Well, I encourage everyone to go and see American, Cre- read American creation, but I didn't know it was pub date. We talked a couple of weeks ago, and since then, I have been looking over, I mean, you have been prolific, Professor. Uh, people know you for the Founding Brothers. You're a Pulitzer Prize winner. How many books total have you written about the origins of America?
2: Uh, this is the twelfth or thirteenth, I think. Uh, I'm yeah, I'm obsessive, and um, uh, whenever I get up when I get up in the morning, like right now, the first thing I want to do is sit at my desk and try to put words on paper. And um, uh, but um, uh, I'm, you know, it's it's what I do, and uh, telling stories and trying to help people understand about America's past, especially America's founding, of course, is what is what I do.
1: Well, after we talked, because I found the cause to be so absorbing, I started to look for another Joseph Ellis book to read next, and having read a few of them in the past, I looked for one I hadn't read. In the context of this challenge, I have taught American constitutional law for 25 years, Professor, and this is the question I have for you that I want to expand on with you. I've taught for 25 years, and I've used the same textbook by Erwin Chemerinsky, almost unbroken, and that textbook, like— Ninety nine percent of textbooks begins in 1803 with a case called Marbury v. Madison, authored by Chief Justice John Marshall. But when I learned in the cause and in the book we're going to talk about today, American Creation, that John Marshall was at Valley Forge, I said, you know, I have to change everything. It's a new Supreme (laughs) Court full of originalists who care a lot for what was in the Constitution and indeed where the Constitution came from. I have to change everything. Do you understand where I'm coming from?
2: Yeah, I do. Because you're looking at what was the hist- what how Marshall's mentality in life was shaped by the revolution and by and by his relationship with Washington, really. But um, and a lot of people don't put Marshall in the list of great founders because he's a little bit younger and comes to to prominence in the 19th century as long as one of the longest serving chief justices, but. Um, yeah, in Valley Forge they called him um they he had a nickname uh the, because he was the best high jumper. <laughs> and uh he was an athlete uh um and um led a, an elite uh, Virginia rifle unit work. uh and during the course of the war about half of the men in his unit were killed. And um he was like a, a Navy SEAL and um uh and I've always wanted to write a great biography of Marshall, and there's some good ones out there, but he, uh, there's
1: not much in the correspondence. About there's, not a, there's not a great one, Professor Ellis. Yes. I hope you take that up, because when I teach the Constitution, I have to teach with a little bit of description about John Marshall, but it begins in 1803, and that's just wrong. So I think your book, American Creation, is going oh. on my reading list now as a first book to get them uh, to 1803 wise yeah. choice. Is that the one you'd suggest? I looked back at
2: it a couple of months ago and, uh, and I thought, Oh gosh, I forgot I did that, you know, and, um, and not just on the Marshall thing or what you're talking about, but, um, there's a lot of stuff in there because it covers the whole founding and some, it's a first pass on a kind of general history of the founding. Um, uh, I'm glad you like it, Hugh, and I And I think there's something to it. I think that um, most constitutional scholars are trained as lawyers rather than as historians. And um, some of them can do both. Uh, the head of Georgetown uh, Law School can do both. But uh, 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 I think there needs to be room on most media programs
1: for a, a segment called Unbreaking News. <laughs> well, well, that's and what we're doing right now We're doing unbreaking that's exactly, news
2: That's exactly what we are doing here. And, uh, and once you to Take the Marshall example And make it a generalization Once you um, uh, Go back and understand Marshall uh, And where he comes from uh, You have a different Window or a different prism Through which you're looking at the ongoing Breaking news in the present And um, you know, when um, when the uh, evacuation of uh, Afghanistan was not going as well as we wanted um, and uh, a lot of people were blaming Biden, I thought, you know, no evacuations when you lose a war ever goes the way you'd like to. And the one that I remember, it's when the British are attempting to evacuate uh, what was the United States after they lose the war um, in uh, both Charleston and uh, in uh, the southern the other southern savannah uh, there are about 2,000 african african-americans are trying to get on the ship to get out because they're they're loyal they've gone over to the british army late in the war and there's not enough room for them and so imagine what they would do with a camera now bringing it up uh, let's say 500 african-americans swimming out to the boats and when they reach up to reach to the boat they try to get in the british crews cutting off their fingers
1: and, um, it's it, There are a remarkable series of vignettes to teach the American Constitution from. Yesterday, yeah. George Will was in this segment, the interview with Hugh Hewitt segment, and he uh-huh. pointed out to me that um, Americans don't do political theory except through constitutional law. It is in constitutional law debates that we do our political theory, meaning how ought uh, a government to be structured. And George is right. And therefore, if you want to have that debate today, you've got to know what it was intended to do. And to know what it's intended to do, you can't read Marbury v. Madison. You have to go back to the French and Indian Wars, which you do. And my favorite example, I'll come back to the French and Indian Wars, is when I teach executive power, I have referred to, very briefly, who is the most egregious example of executive power overreach. And they will say Korematsu, and that's pretty bad. And they will say Nixon and Watergate. And that's pretty bad. But just in terms of sheer forget about what the Constitution says, we're going to do it. It's the Louisiana Purchase, is it not?
2: Right. You're right. And it's done by a man who claims that any robust use of executive power is monarchy. And yet it's Thomas Jefferson. And but when the opportunity to purchase the middle third of the United States comes up, he basically says it's too good an opportunity to miss. And he says, I do it for the future, even though I know I'm abandoning my principles to do it. Uh, It does come back to haunt him. Notice he doesn't put that on his tombstone. Uh, And um, uh, because then the the territory becomes the grounds for which the debate over the Missouri crisis, et cetera, Slavery enters into the question. It, and he's set the precedent for federal control over the territory by purchasing it. Um, and, uh, and that means that the, that the federal government could, if it wished to, exercise its power to prohibit slavery in the territory, which he opposes. Anyway,
1: now, it's fascinating to right. me, though. I, I have known about the Louisiana Purchase since, what, sixth grade? And everybody knows about a paragraph. We got a great deal from the French. They may know the bathtub story. But they don't know that Robert Livingston uh, confronted Talleyrand, the greatest diplomat of his generation and maybe many generations, as a formidable and unmovable object. They don't know about Monroe going over. They don't know any of it. it matters to understanding everything about how we govern ourselves.
2: It's a great story. I try to tell it in one chapter at the end of American Creation, but I think that um, uh, uh, it's 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 one of the most significant decisions in American history, obviously, because you know it, it guarantees an effect that we're, the manifest destiny is going to mean the whole continent. It really is the first step there, and uh, Frederick Jackson Turner always said that. And uh, um, but it, I, I think that the more you understand American history, the less likely it is that you will be so certain of your own convictions that, that you can't argue about them with other people who disagree. It gives you a perspective that almost always leads to more intense and more productive dialogue about why we are here, what we are, and how we got here. And um, uh, and uh, the story of the Louisiana Purchase is like the story of uh, the Mississippi. It winds and, and bends around, and uh, it's got lots of different players, and. Um, Whenever you see a straight line in nature, you know, there's no such thing as a straight line in nature. Whenever you see a straight line in American history, you know you falsified the story.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that our friends at your publishing house are saying, talk about the cause, talk about the cause. And here I am talking about American creation. I might assign both of them because the intensity of the revolutionary spirit infuses yeah. the Declaration of Independence. But right. the myriad problems of the founding are brought together in American creation. They're really bookends. And you write... Go ahead. Pardon me? You write in American creation, the founding is actually 28 years long. And if you're going to be an originalist, do you think you need to know all 28 years pretty well?
2: Yeah, you do. And... um uh the originalist on in on the legal side of things many of the members of the federalist society there's a spectrum within that political and ideological spectrum um uh, uh one of the most important things they have to understand is that most of the founders didn't want them to interpret the constitution according to what they believed the late eighteenth century values were that 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 uh, Jefferson actually thought we ought to rewrite the Constitution every twenty years um, uh it's but I do think it's also true that the principles in the Constitution are a set of values uh that are based on the revolution okay i mean here's a thing that would why is it uh, constitutional lawyers regard the founding document exclusively as the Constitution Lincoln. Thought it was the declaration. Yep.
1: Now, the, you know what I'm saying here. I do. And I teach that. I think the declaration is, as Lincoln said, the apple of gold surrounded by the frame of silver, borrowing from proverbs. And the frame of silver is the Constitution.
2: Right. I, I, and and I think that if once you do that, your definition of what the fundamental rights are that we have, we cannot abandon, and what the role of government is, and managing uh, our economy and our society it becomes more complicated and um, but and I think that the found that people talk about the founders and think they're talking about a single unit the founders disagreed that's what's making you know, it that's what gives them such incredible resonance because they are a built-in checks and balances it's not just in the Constitution it's in the values and the ideas that the founders themselves hold. If you let Jefferson go on his own, we'd be an anarchy. If yes. you let Hamilton go, we'd be a, a, an authoritarian, totalitarian state. And um, and it's the interaction of those people over that long period of time that gives us the shape that it does. That's the reason I love the Adams-Jefferson correspondence at the end of the of the period, because it's like, it's like the dialogue, the great American dialogue between two sides of the founding, and what different you know, what the two sides really thought, and the fact that they come together and can argue about this and recover the friendship. I mean, heavens to bet you do if only in our own day we could have that kind of comity and that kind of dialogue, and it's, I'm afraid right now I don't see it easy or possible in this nation.
1: Uh, Professor Ellis, neither do I. I would also point, I will be pointing my law students, I don't teach until January, I'm on leave this semester, to Patrick Henry at the Virginia Ratification Constitution. First of all, Uh, all praise to you for including a great deal about the Ratification Convention. I tried to tell people, it's Philadelphia matters a lot, but it doesn't mean anything until they get the nine votes in nine state conventions. Nine states, right. But at the end of it, you they they gather around Patrick Henry and Patrick Henry is lost by like a whisker like three votes right and, right. and Oh, i know people, where
2: you are going on this dude. yes yes okay well yeah, tell I'm people about, yeah. what he does uh what he does is said let's go home we gave it the best shot we could we lost and um let's let's stop talking about it and 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 that's it um i mean uh, yeah and um and in some sense, that's the pattern that gets established in all close elections throughout American history. Um, I mean, the great principle of uh, established with Jefferson's election in 1800, 1801, because it was a close, close vote. In fact, Hamilton probably bought the New York legislature in some place. But um, I think that, uh, that you once you lose, you surrender. And you go to into opposition, and then fight your, for your values in that in that camp. That's the pattern. And so, what's happened most recently is unprecedented. It's truly unprecedented. And,
1: and Patrick uh, Henry is the original great populist, the original greatest orator uh, in American history. Am I right about that? Yeah. The, the greatest command of the language on the floor. He, he's he is. He, I would think
2: that they he was regarded as such by the founding generation. You don't want to go up against Patrick Henry. Um, he is what uh, Jefferson says, a host unto himself. And, um, uh, but he also, Jefferson also said to Madison uh, before the ratification convention, and Jefferson was in, in France at the time, he said about, about and Madison was saying, we've got, we got to go up against Henry here. And Jefferson said, we must devoutly pray for his imminent death.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I read that line. I love that line because it, it proves that Jefferson and, and Madison are funny guys. They're just talking in private correspondence. But I also like the fact that, and I'm going to, I, I, at the end of this, I'm going to ask you, and you might start thinking about it. What lessons must the average American con law student, when they begin to sit down to study the constitution, know about the founding? One of them that I believe is that parties were always part of the deal. Now, I'm a party man. I'm a Republican. Mm -hmm. I'm unashamedly a party man. I'm like Disraeli. If you rise Mm -hmm. by party, you must not denounce party. I -hmm. like in American creation that Jefferson is a thoroughgoing party man, though he does not want to be known as one. Is that a fair statement?
2: Yes. Uh, uh, Jefferson said, if I must go to heaven in a party, I prefer not to go at all so he's he's either fooling himself or he's fooling everybody else, but he and Madison create the first party um the first opposition party in the early seventeen nineties during washington's first term and um uh the most here's a lot of the textbooks i and I haven't looked at the legal textbooks. they talk about it as the Democratic Republican party. that's not what they called it, right, and it's not called that until eighteen sixteen or eighteen fifteen it's called the Republican Party. The first compli- Republican Party. Yep. Yeah. Well, that, that's what's complicated, because it turns the the, Dem- the Republican Party turns into the Democratic Republican Party. It turns into the Democratic Party. Okay. The Federalists turn into the Whigs that turn into the Republican Party. So it's 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 mind blowing, and that's one of the reasons they the textbooks and a lot of good historians. But the word democracy in the late 18th century is an epithet. The word democracy means mob rule. It means surrender of power to a floating mass of people who don't understand what's going on. And so one of the things that is my answer to your question about what they need to know is that res publica means public things, public things. Okay. the highest calling of any kind of statesman is not to do what the people want. It's to do what the public requires, and the public is the long-term interest of the people, which at any given moment, my, many of the people won't won't fathom and won't understand. A republic is built on a democratic foundation, but it filters the opinion of the of the people through layers of refinement, which is what they're supposed to be doing in the in the House and the Senate and the Supreme Court and the presidency. Um, uh, but the public interest, right? For example, if we had a really good debate now, what would we say was in the interest of the American public, of the, the, the collective interest of the people? And in terms of vaccines and stuff, the public interest, presumes that citizens will internalize, or at least the, mo- the, the leading citizens will internalize a collective interest of the whole. So you you get the vaccine and wear a mask because you know that that's in the larger interest of your neighborhood, of the community you live in, and in the nation at large, so we can get herd immunity.
1: The, but, civic, yeah. the civic religion was well understood. Now, they had ferocious debates over particular oh, yeah. ones. One oh, yeah. of the I mean, lessons I know that I have often taught, but now I have American creation to prove it to them. Is that the Constitution was written with the intention of being read and understood by ordinary Americans. It is not a priesthood. Constitutional Mm. lawyers are not a cult. They're not the Mithradic prophets. It's not uh, uh, Delphi That they were handed around to farmers. I had this argument with Justice Breyer on this show. Uh, because he said the founders didn't understand the Internet. And I said, but they understood liberty, uh, Justice Breyer. <laughs> a- and I think I'm right. What do you think?
2: I'm on with you, baby. And um, I mean, Breyer has a new book. I haven't read it yet. And, you know, he's under pressure to retire, as a matter of fact. With the, uh, my impression of Mr. Breyer is he's such a decent guy that he yes. doesn't want to argue about things. You know, let's us gentlemen be able to sit down and, and not argue. And there's some serious arguments that. That need to uh, need to happen here. I mean, I would venture to guess you that less than 10 percent of the lawyers in America could be able to answer the following question. Who wrote the Constitution? OK, everybody would say, be able to answer the question. Who wrote the Declaration? Jefferson, yes. Right. There would be a very few people. They would say, well, the whole the whole Congress. No, it's not. It's-, it's not. It's one guy. And he's okay. small. And, and, he's, and you won't hear about him, but he actually speaks more frequently during the convention than any other delegate does. It's a, it's a, he's an interesting, witty, naughty character in Governor Morris. And Governor Morris makes. The most oh, I thought you were mentioning Madison. I thought
1: you were going no, to. Oh, no, is no. Morris I, is the style committee. You're right. Matt,
2: Madison doesn't write it, they surrender control of this to Governor Morris. And the earlier draft of the Constitution, which he revises significantly, uh, begins, we the people of the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, etc." and they go down the list, and he changes that, we the people of the United States. That is the single most important and consequential editorial change in American history. You're okay? right. And uh, because it in one clause takes a position on the issue that's at the center of the entire debate throughout the convention. Are we still a confederation of sovereign states or, or have we become something called a sovereign nation? And, uh, and they fudge that. And I mean, the compromises reached essentially allow both sides to walk away thinking that they have a portion of the, of the am- I think what of- you
1: do so elegantly is that you prove that the constitution solved the myriad problems of the confederation by institutionalizing the arguments they were having. And I think that's, that's right. a brilliant observation. I am going to teach them you know, I'll give a test. In order to okay. get law students to read anything, you have to test them on it because they're busy <laughs> trying to pass the bar exam. And I understand that. And they've got to get a bunch of stuff from Con Law. So if I load them up with too much, they'll just blow it off. But if I do a quiz on American creation, they'll read it. One of the things I will quiz them on, and if they listen to this interview, they'll get a tip is the trick that Madison persuaded Jefferson to try in an effort to stop the Jay Treaty. And I uh, think it's a brilliant, because what Jefferson originally proposed is blatantly unconstitutional. Would you explain that? Because it's, it's a brilliant move by the man who mostly wrote the Constitution, its framework, Madison, and the fellow yeah. who wrote the Declaration about whether or not they're going to honor the rule of law.
2: That's right, I mean, the Constitution specifies that treaties of the United States must be ratified by two thirds of the Senate. Um, and um, Jefferson is opposed, violently opposed to the Jay Treaty, he thinks it's a sellout to the Brits and an abandonment of the French. Um, he, he By that he's retired from being Secretary of State, he's back at Monticello, but the people, the press is saying he's the generalissimo and Madison's the general, heading this opposition party called the Republicans. What Jefferson says is, look, I don't think the Constitution's right, and we're gonna make a change right here, we don't have to do anything formal, that I think the House itself, which they happen to control, the Republicans, can simply vote uh, against this treaty, and that's the end of it. And that is closest to the people, and therefore closest to the values that we hold dear, and therefore we can kill this thing. And Madison says, I don't think he want to do that. Um, Madison is, is you know, Jefferson. He he worships the ground Jefferson walks on, and uh, but he a lot of things that Jefferson does are really Madisonian things that he's convinced of. And in this case, what you're pointing to is he says we don't have to do that. We can stay within the framework of the Constitution by simply saying, okay, if the Senate passes this, the House controls money bills, and the House controls whether or not this this Treaty can be funded, and if the House decides not to provide that funding, then we can kill the treaty that way, which is indirect um, uh, but effective and legal and
1: constitutional. And, and so, legal. if you have a if you have a uh, first principles argument, find a constitutional way to advance it. And I think it's a wonderful anecdote that people mm-hmm. need to know about. I didn't know about. There are many things I didn't know about in uh, American creation. Uh, professor, But but to quickly summarize, I want them to also read the cause because uh, men and women died in uh, order to advance a principle. And they died pretty horrible deaths. And Valley right. Forge is pretty damn awful. And I don't think people understand how awful that it was or what a close run thing it was or how the vastness of the American space is what eventually won the war. Jefferson recognized with the French as well. Why do you think they this is really the argument I want them to hear. Why do you think they need to know everything, at least an outline from 1863 to 1803? They need 40 years of history before they read Marbury versus Madison. Why?
2: Mm-hmm. Because if they want to be successful lawyers, they've got to be more than technicians. They've got to be grounded in a set of principles and understand them and they will be, uh, when they get a client, of course, they've got to represent the interest of their client, but that must be driven uh, at least by a, over a, a deeper sense of who we are as a people and how we've gotten here. And if they don't know that, then they're really technicians. They're not really lawyers. They're really not. Uh, they're not grounded. I mean, in some sense, it's why I believe in the liberal arts as an educational foundation. Um, uh, and. Um, uh, we're, in the age of uh, of the Internet, everybody thinks they can just uh, we don't have to know anything because we can look it up on our phone. OK, no, no, no. If it's in there, it's going to affect your thinking about everything. And it's not just something you can look up. It has to be something that you live.
1: Yeah, you know, that that so applies to just Chief Justice Marshall. Uh, You know, I knew he was a great man. I knew he was involved in the Madison, uh, Marbury v. Madison controversy. I know the the wonderful genius of McCulloch. I know the wonderful genius of Marbury. In fact, Baltimore v. Barron's one of my favorite, he writes with such grandeur, the issue before us is of great consequence, but not much difficulty. I love everything that he did, but I didn't know he was at Valley Forge until I read American Creation. And that changes my entire, I didn't know he was part of the Virginia Rifles. I mean, that's an amazing thing.
2: Yeah. He was. He. I mean, and Jefferson said, uh, he, Jefferson was afraid of Marshall. And, um, and, uh, and he regarded Marshall as a Trojan horse that was buried inside his own presidential administration. But he said to everybody listening to it, never engage Marshall in a conversation. Don't let him start talking to you, because he will take whatever you take, you give him, and he will twist it. And he says he's a master of twistifications, huh. which, <laughs> and, and that you know the argument starts here, and you think you're with him, and then all of a sudden you find out he's taking you to some totally different place. And, um, uh, and if you think about it too, all those all those decisions come out of the martial Court; those majority decisions or unanimous decisions. Um, and it's Marshall that's the force behind him and uh, that's making him. I mean, he serves from what, 1801 to 1832, I think. He's yeah, I tell officer. people
1: now I have to disclose the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Roberts is an acquaintance of mine. We worked together for a year in the Reagan White House and shared an office and I see him occasionally. I believe he is going to be as great a Chief Justice as Marshall when looked back at a distance equal to mm-hmm. what we look back at at Marshall from. I am curious. Professor, if I can give you a suggestion. If you were to write a book, Constitutional History for Law Students, not a very sexy title, uh, but I think it would become a required reading uh, for every law student in America going forward, how long do you think it would be?
2: 250 pages.
1: And I think it would be the most read to it. Constitutional Law for Law Students uh, hmm. the, an introduction. I really hope you'll think about that. I know you've probably got project <laughs> after project and you're out there promoting the cause right now, but right. we can't, we can't erase one quick question. I'll let you go. Why does the, French the way, why, why, why,
2: you know, the, you, your, your colleague, the chief justice, current chief justice was a history major at Harvard and did his uh, senior thesis under Bernard Balin. So he's grounded in American history in a way that few others are.
1: And that, I was talking about American history with Harvey Mansfield because I did my undergraduate in political theory at Harvard. And that's a lot easier than history history. I wish I had done history or English. And you know, you, uh, I just went, you, I backfill. I still don't quite get what 1863 was about, but why does it matter? 1863 to the shots fired heard round the world. Why do constitutional law students need to know about that?
2: You mean 1763? 1763. 1763. Say, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, well, because that's the start of the Big Bang in the American political universe, and it uh, resonates forward throughout the rest of our next two centuries until our own time. That's when we re-decide, we reframe ourselves not just as an independent nation that's free of British control, but also as the first um, nation-sized Republican in, in world history, um, the first to separate church and state, the first to, do, to divide sovereignty, to say you can do that, Let's call federalism. All these new ideas, the Enlightenment ideas. And so that you you have to be present at the creation, to understand what that's doing. And in some sense, it's a revol- the American Revolution continues as we continue to define what, what those words mean. The Constitution is not a set of eternal principles you can memorize. It's a framework in which we can argue about those principles. And the argument is never ending.
1: And it can be understood and it can be read. I do want to pay you one more compliment, professor. You wrote American creation a couple of decades ago. But before the pressures of the current moment, you dealt plainly with the villainy of slavery and the enslavement of uh. the free people. You dealt very plainly and objectively with the horrific crimes done to the Native Americans. You sensed it coming. or you as a historian understood it was your obligation? You do not gloss over anything. I just wish that the great villain of American history, Calhoun, would be dealt with by you at some point because he is the great villain. He takes what was known as a moral repugnant compromise and tries to sanctify it. He is the villain.
2: Yeah, I know, and it's hard to do that. I mean, if you go to South Carolina, they still love him, and um, but I think that slavery is the original sin of American history, and um, the. This is the important point, and because there are historians who, out there, who don't agree with this, but I don't understand why. They, the American Revolution is, is is a revolution fought on principles that make slavery a contradiction. Yes. That is, okay? And Washington agreed to that. Jefferson, slave owners, all of, you know, uh, Madison as well, that, that, and that they believe they have to find a way to end it um and uh, and so but there is a school of thought it's called the 1619 project that uh argues that the american revolution was a revolution to preserve slavery and i don't know how they get there because it, it does the sources don't support them but it does have um it does have a lot of resonance within the profession among certain people Um, I I try
1: and explain it professor to my law students in in vernacular that they understand the founders were enslavement addicts if you look around and you see the the fentanyl addicts or the alcoholics or any kind of addict in America the framers were enslavement addicts and they knew they had a horrible problem that would kill them they didn't know how to break it and Lincoln
2: yeah, Lincoln does it, but he does it in, you know, remember the how the Gettysburg Address, that, you know, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent, a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Um, when the women gather at Seneca Falls in 1848, they begin their manifesto. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. When Martin Luther King gathers at the step of the Lincoln Memorial, He says, I've come to collect on a promissory note written by Thomas Jefferson. So you don't want to throw the founders out. No, you don't. You don't want to throw the revolution out as a racist movement. It wasn't. The problem they had is that even though they knew how they wanted to, to, they they knew that slavery was incompatible with the values. There's somebody back in the 18th century, a a Methodist minister who's an abolitionist during the 1780s who said, Uses the metaphor that Lincoln uses: a house divided its, uh, against itself cannot stand. They know they're living a contradiction. But how do you end it? Uh, I think that a, that it's a tragedy, and the question is: is it a Greek tragedy or a Shakespearean tragedy? If it's a Shakespearean tragedy, it means that we could have it could have gone the other way, and I think it could have. I think that with the right leadership, we could have done it, but it was. But it's built on the principle that a vast majority of the white citizenry then, a vast majority, 80 to 90 percent, did not believe that African Americans were their equals and were unprepared to give them the same rights that they gave whites. I believe, by the
1: way, in American creation, you got me to really think about the counterfactual for the first time, where the colonies break up into two or three. You suggest three would have been the likelier series of confederations, New England, Mid-Atlantic and South. And had that happened, it would have been Europe and we'd still be Europe. And there might be the French. It would have been impossible to get New Orleans back from the Spanish and the French. It would have been.
2: Mm. It's hard to play the tape out, Hugh, because you don't know how it's going to go. But I do think the South, the Southern states, which became a a republic of their own, um, would have signed a treaty with Britain, Britain. Because Britain provides the slaves, and Britain is the market for what will become cotton. Um, uh, but we can't know that. Uh, no. We don't know how it, But the point you're making is the point that I was making that the the immediate aftermath of the revolution, we're not a nation, we're a confederation of a kind of league of nations, if you will, and it's sort of like the EU, and that's that, that's where it looks like we're going to head, and it's going to take a kind of benevolent coup de combat to change that, and we call that the Constitutional Convention. Um, and it's leadership from above, because if you took a poll at that time, 80% of the American people don't care. Um, they, you know, they, they, The average American is born, lives out his or her life, and dies within a three-day horse ride. Their views are local. They're not continental or national. And um, uh, at any rate, I'm really thrilled that you love the book You've got to plug the book that's coming out now at the end of this program so my publisher doesn't kill me. The
1: cause, the cause, the cause. Frank Luntz's mm-hmm. rule is that you've got to say the name of a book seven times, and it's the cause. <laughs> and I'm going to assign the cause and American Creation. But I know that an author's books are like children, and you'll never pick a favorite. But people who look at large families always pick the one who's going to win over the long haul. I yeah. think American Creation or whatever you write for law students will be in classrooms of law students for decades to come because as originalists rise, they've got to understand what happened before Marbury. And you're the only guy who puts it together in a, in a winsome, fascinating, joyous romp. And I think they also have to read The Cause because otherwise they won't understand the rest. Uh, they just won't.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know I was writing the history of the founding backwards, you know, and, um, and I get to the beginning at the end. But in the same way, if you've ever written a book, you know this, you write the preface last yes, because you don't know where you're going until you've gotten there. And uh, in some sense, the current book, uh, uh, what's the name of the cause, yes, Uh, is is the culmination here. And American uh, creation is in the middle of the story, but it then goes backwards and forwards. Uh, Anyway, if you're a writer, you know what I'm talking
1: about. I do. I've written a a dozen books myself, and I must say – uh, they're all very good, and I appreciate the generous dollop of time you've given me. Thank you for the cause. Thank you for American creation. I think my law students will thank you eventually, but they got more work to do now.
2: They will hate me initially, though, I'm afraid.
1: Nah, they'll become lifelong readers <laughs> of Joseph Ellis. Professor, thank you again for joining me this morning. Thank you, Hugh. Take care now. You too. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did, and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.
0: Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn.